2: Welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. This is the podcast with the unpopular belief that progressive centre-left politics has a lot to offer the modern world. The April issue of Progress Magazine examines the technological revolution, the impact of artificial intelligence, online campaigning, how social media giants are using our data, and what a progressive response to all of this should be. I'm Connor Polk, Progress Deputy Editor, and I'll be discussing that with our director, Richard Angel, digital editor Sam Bright and Hannah Miller, a consultant at Oxford Insights, where she advises on organisations on the strategic, cultural and leadership opportunities stemming from artificial intelligence. past few weeks have seen a scandal emerge around a company called Cambridge Analytica and the use of allegedly illegally harvested data from Facebook. Cambridge Analytica worked for Donald Trump's campaign and allegedly worked for the Leave.eu campaign in the EU referendum. Sam, I was wondering if we could start with you. Could you give us a a vague and quick overview of what all of this has been about
1: I'll, i'll try my best so basically starting in 2014 cambridge analytica collected a massive amount of data alongside a cambridge university academic they paid people to essentially fill out their information take a personality test on an app on facebook this app collected the information of not just the people who filled in the survey but also their friends information as well. Don't ask me how they did that. It's beyond me. Facebook's policy, however, bars the use of users' friends' information and um, to be sold or to use for advertising purposes. And the accusation is that Cambridge Analytica did just that. They used it in their subsequent political work, advertising online, uh, in various elections across the world, from Kenya to the United States to Britain, and that this was a breach of both facebook's privacy policies and privacy policies in general
2: god it's not exactly the perfumer scandal is it for kind of like, <laughs> this is the modern age i think be, before we kind of go a bit further on this i think we should clarify hannah you work for um oxford insights no that relation is, that is no relation of no Cambridge no general no to. no completely unrelated so, so what kind of stuff is it that, y- that you guys do
4: so we work on um advising organizations and the public sector particularly around the world about how they can take advantage of new technologies, uh, including artificial intelligence to improve their operations and their public service delivery?
2: Yes, yeah, so that is quite quite different <laughs> from to do with Facebook. <laughs> so, so, but so far, is there, is there evidence of illegal activity with what has been going on in this?
1: Well, there's there's been accusations bandied about by various whistleblowers. Obviously, the information commissioner has been granted a warrant to, I think in the past week or two, to go in and search Cambridge Analytica's data records to see whether they can stack up what the whistleblowers are accusing the company of. But essentially, it looks like there's been a breach of privacy of these friends of the users who filled in the app. There's also an accusation that Cambridge Analytica worked on the EU referendum campaign, as you mentioned, and if they did work on this campaign, which they strenuously deny, that might also be a breach of. the... But we
2: think we we think they did because Aaron Banks kept saying that they did. Isn't that right? And they what... also bragged
3: that they did a little bit. Yeah, and their parent company has been bragging they did a little bit, didn't they?
1: Yeah, they did, and there were articles published, and then they suddenly realised that this might be illegal. <laughs> they rolled so they back. They definitely didn't. definitely dissent. didn't. I have yeah.
2: to say, I keep, I keep buying the Observer when they've got a front page on this and then just like not reading the story. So <laughs> I'm not quite up to date on it all. But um, do we really think that any of this is going to put the referendum result in doubt?
1: Andrew Adonis would probably hope so. <laughs> <laughs> um, but somehow, yeah. somehow I doubt it. I think we're, we're quite far down the road now. I mean, w- one thing I should say is that Perhaps we should take this in context. Um, I mean, in, in the magazine, I interviewed Obama's head of digital analytics and she was saying to me that... That's Amelia Shawalter, yeah. Exactly. And she said to me that these sorts of online campaigns influence 2 to 3% of the vote maximum. So Cambridge Analytica weren't rigging elections. They weren't swinging the vote by 20%. What, what's
2: the
3: difference between the people who voted <laughs> leave and people who voted <laughs> remain?
1: Well, not it was four percent, so it was outside. So two percent swing, yeah. It could they could have done, they could <laughs> they could have done. But is this is this really sort of? You're placing the whole of that swing down to Cambridge Analytica, potentially. You know, who's to say it isn't, you know, not 0.5%? I don't know. I don't know. I'm I'm sceptical about the extent to which they, they influenced the elections. The Obama lady said it. <laughs> <laughs> That's that Are
2: we sure that any of this kind of happened in terms of the... Was there an effect in the EU referendum at all? Do we know that Cambridge Analytica had that connection? Well, the
1: the thing is that the work that they supposedly did was actually relatively minimal for the EU referendum campaign. So it was, they had a meeting and they did some some very minor advisory work. Whereas in the case of Donald Trump's campaign, they were integrated in the campaign. There's even suggestions that Facebook had someone within Cambridge Analytica who was syncing all of their activities up to facebook systems there were definitely people from facebook in donald trump's campaign so they were probably working together in the case of the EU referendum they really didn't have as much of an influence
2: i think my favorite bit of all of this was when facebook took out a, a page advert in a bunch of newspapers to apologize for all of the data having gone missing um Rather than just put it on people's Facebook feeds yeah. where they're much more likely to see it. Would you
3: have would you advise that in your company as Facebook a way of handling this crisis?
4: What, taking out an advert on Facebook?
3: <laughs> would <you> have maybe, <laughs> what, what would you have said to them about how they can deal with this, Anna?
4: Um, oh, I don't know. That's a bit tricky. We don't do much crisis management. Um, but yeah, print media does seem an odd way to go about it. Well, most of their audience are going to be on social media, so they might as well, you know, Use the thing that got them in trouble in the first place.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, we should move on. But next we'll be talking about how artificial intelligence could have a revolutionary effect on tackling inequality and poverty. Burroughs
3: Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honouring highly requested new colours for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you.
4: Hi, I'm June Sarpong, and if you like the Progressive Britain podcast, then we ask you to subscribe, rate or review it on iTunes, because that's how we reach a larger audience. And that's what progressive politics is all about.
2: Hannah Miller, in the latest Progress magazine, you write, Among the horror stories in the headlines, we should not lose sight of this. AI, like most technology, is not inherently bad. Artificial intelligence is a set of approaches and algorithms. It is simply a tool. Well, this technology is not inherently bad, it's not inherently fair either. It runs on the data that feeds it. And the data often reflects the patterns of prejudice built into our daily lives. Are there kind of insurmountable, previously insurmountable challenges that we can now look at solving using artificial intelligence? And, and what kind of stuff might that be like?
4: Yeah, so artificial intelligence represents quite an exciting opportunity amongst other new technologies to solve problems that were kind of previously thought of as almost impossible to solve. I, in the last week have been looking at how they can be applied to problems in international development. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are some really exciting uses of new technologies that I can give you a few examples of. So for example, in Rwanda and Tanzania, they have an ongoing problem that the infrastructure to rural communities is insufficient to allow uh, emergency medical supplies to get there in time. And so a company has designed a system of uh, drones that fly autonomously to get blood supplies and other emergency medicines to these areas within 30 minutes. So basically it helps prevent a lot of uh, needless deaths Mm. um, and overcomes problems caused by a lack of infrastructure and and just the problems posed by living in such remote areas. And similarly, we've been doing a lot of work in Mexico recently and AI has over there is helping to solve problems that technologies that came before it weren't able to address. So for example, um, I've been speaking with a Mexican entrepreneur who had observed failures of previous of the government's previous tech for development programs, such as giving all the schools in Mexico computers, but then failing to give them um, tech support. And so when they kind of malfunctioned or broke, they ended up just kind of rotting in the corner. So he designed a system of educational supplements that are these little devices that are voice powered AI that plug into TVs because the problem in rural areas is that there isn't a lot of internet or smartphones to use apps, but a lot of people do have TVs. So these devices plug into into TVs and Mm. give people access to um, videos and articles. And to counter the problem of lots of broken parts, he made them voice activated. Mm. So he kind of, I mean, obviously it is still a potential broken part, but he's, by looking at the kind of failures of previous things, artificial intelligence and entrepreneurs can use that to design new solutions to problems. So yeah, there's lots of exciting applications.
2: So those examples that you just used there, were they done by kind of um, private companies and entrepreneurs in that way? And so it's not really... In many of these cases, kind of connected to the the state. All this is
4: well. It's interesting. Some of them are, and some of them aren't. Often, they begin as private company innovations, and then the state then recognizes them as a really good solution mm. to problems that they are working on. So, actually, in both cases, um, of those cases, uh, the the drone company was American, but both projects have been enacted with the ministries of health in Rwanda and Tanzania. Right. Um, whereas the and and similarly, the um, the entrepreneur was Mexican, and his company has worked with, now is now working with the Mexican government to roll out this system across uh, states of Mexico.
2: But I suppose on on the flip side of this is that if people are wanting to use it in a good way, then they can. But if it's not harnessed for good causes, it actually could reflect the inequality in our society and, and possibly kind of increase it. through the-
4: Yeah, of course, of course, that is, I mean, the thing about AI is that it's become kind of a buzzword. And people use it to refer to lots of different things. And it's it's not this kind of full artificial general intelligence that doesn't exist yet that can do everything that a human can. It tends to mean a, ta- a thing that can do a, you know, a selection of tasks or one narrow task. Um, so effectively, it is a tool like any other piece of technology. And people have got a little bit, understandably, given its potential, people have got concerned and a bit carried away with the idea of it. But it is a tool, and like any other technology, it can be used for good and it can be used for bad. So that's why it is so important that the right people are involved in developing mm. it and um, using it and ensuring that uh, as many people have access to it as
2: possible. Yeah, Richard, is it kind of understandable to be very wary about this technology? I think it
3: is good to be encouraging of it and to try and be inquisitive about where it might go. But like what we found when Uber and uh things like um airbnb came on the scene not only were there big consequences of displacing people being disruptive to normal forms of employment or places that people live you know you go to barcelona and you see like whole tower blocks where people have got banners saying airbnb off basically because we're uh, not very happy about how this has changed in our area. Obviously, West Streeting and others have been campaigning about Uber undercutting black cabs and, and the like. But the Social Market Foundation, who happened to share a building with us, did some quite interesting stuff about the kind of uh, re emergence of essentially people being racist in the choice of where they stay when they're using BNB and the kind of uh, whether they're, they're giving somebody three or five stars on their apps uh, when they're approving people. So like we're seeing that re-emerge and one of the things that's potentially really worrying with some of the AI stuff and where computers are starting to learn and build algorithms of their own is they might build in racism or sexism or homophobia or whatever else might be happening in society so because they're developed by people who come with inherent prejudices um they're being prone that way and often these I think one of the most how they're being programmed being done privately as well.
2: Yeah, I think one of the the kind of famous examples of this is um, an electronic um, hand dryer that didn't recognise black people's skin because it had been developed and tested by white people, and so the sensor on it simply couldn't kind of tell if 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 someone of colour was uh, was trying to use it.
4: Yeah, completely. This is this is a huge issue because. We can't disassociate the algorithms and the data that feeds them. It goes beyond just the algorithms. The data that that these things run on is is from humans,
0: mm. and
4: humans are biased. And so, to to think that, that an algorithm is just a piece of technology, or even that a data is just the thing that feeds the technology and is neutral, is is completely, uh, you know, it's just the wrong idea. So it is, and there's countless examples, like you say, of 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 uh, things, you know, like the automatic uh, parole board giving disproportionately, uh, not giving recommendations for parole to black people. There's heaps of examples of, of Google Images turning up. Um, sorry, Google Translate coming up with sexist results when translating languages. So that's why it is so important that there's diversity amongst the people who develop these things. Otherwise, they will just continue to replicate these biases.
2: And it's a shame um, Alice McGovern, who usually is on the pod- podcast, couldn't be here. On it today, because she used to be um, Shadow International Development Secretary. And actually, a lot of this sounds like it could really revolutionise the way that we go about international development at a time when the, the aid budget is coming under so much pressure from the hard right and the Tory party. That Actually, we could be using this money and essentially getting much better results out of the same amount of money. What do you make of the kind of um, our ability to defend the aid budget with this kind of new tax? kind of technology?
3: Well, I think you're going to see two things happening simultaneously. The taxpayer could get more bang for their buck in doing it, and not least because they're, they're only getting so many returns from the amount that they're putting in at the moment. There's only so many communities being reached, whereas this gives you a step change potentially into even more rural communities than are currently being affected. For example, you know that amazing example of getting um, blood to areas that need the transfusions quickly is just potentially transformative. But equally, you can totally imagine now the right with their the attack you see on India this is a country that's got its own space program why are we giving them aid you can soon imagine well Nigeria's got drones everywhere taking this <laughs> stuff around why on earth are we giving them this money like well I mean you and you see I, I saw some absurd I mean it was clearly actually from a racist but yeah you know, everyone in Africa's <laughs> got a mobile phone now like why do they even need this aid budget and it's like oh my god but the the, the development of mobile technology has bypassed and, and giving people access to information in a way that when you had to dig up the roads to put down wiring to then build a kind of phone network, let alone a broadband one, just never could be afforded on the continent. But suddenly you're seeing access to new information going because you just put a mast up and mobile phones have seen that forward. So I fear that it's going to go
2: both ways. Some a lot of this sounds like essentially who controls the technology can fashion whether or not it is a good or bad thing. Does this just say to you that essentially this is the reason that we need to embrace the technological revolution as progressives?
1: I think, yes, but we've got to be wary about, like you say, who owns it? And we've got to, I mean, many of the articles in our magazine mentioned this, democratize technology. And I mean, currently you've got a digital world that's dominated by a few tech giants, Google, Amazon, um, Apple, etc. They have consumed the market. Does that, is it that on MySpace anymore? No because Facebook's eaten it, essentially. It's eaten it alive. Um, and that means that it's the, the digital world, world is contr- tr- controlled by a few barons who have all the power and all the wealth. And we need to have um, rigorous um, authorities that um, assess the ethics of what they're doing and can also say... In the case of Google, no, you're, you're unfairly benefiting your own products over the competition, and that's wrong, and we shouldn't allow you to get away with that. And no the marketplace would we. When I
3: started in student politics, I got a great piece of advice. Uh, he or she who holds the pen holds the power. And basically, if you get to write the minutes, you get to decide what happened in the meeting. That was broadly the piece of advice. But that seems to be the case with social media. The people who are writing the code, building the systems, you, people go on to Facebook thinking it is a free space. I can say anything I like. I can do all this stuff. People exert their um, First Amendment rights in America uh, very strongly uh, on, on Facebook. Um, and arguably one of the reasons why it's not being regulated is because of the First Amendment in, in America But it is a totally private space. It is owned by a small group of individuals who decide exactly what can happen there. And if, for example, Twitter, as a friend of mine was arguing to me this week, opened their various systems, there might be some other people who can work out who are these bots, who are these trolls, who are, are they all the same person? Because there'd be various, the information is there, but it is currently actively hidden by the owner's. Of Twitter,
1: yeah, and that's a real worry. I, I think w- this kind of comes back to something that we talked about the podcast with uh, Raphael Baer the fact that Facebook has made these news feed changes and um, to tackle the issue of fake news, to prioritise personal posts rather than the posts of publishers. Why shouldn't users be able to decide for themselves? Whether they'd rather see the publish the, the the posts of publishers or their friends, if if I was given the ability to do that, I would have a much better experience on Facebook, and potentially at the same time, a lot of people would kill off fake news because they'd just say, "Well, I don't want to receive publishers' information. I just want to see things from my friends." You know, it, it, that kind of seems something that Facebook should should look at. You know, obviously there are lots of big innovations out there. From a policymaker's point of view, how do you ascertain which is a solution, an uh, innovative solution using technology that we should be putting money into or we should, you know, what are the hallmarks of something that you know is gonna take off and is gonna be worth public money, essentially?
4: I think the obvious answer there is by trialing it and by finding out. And and one of one of the great things about um the kind of age of big data and the ability to use big data is that policymakers now have the opportunity to kind of simulate real world environments for testing out new policies, including things like new tech solutions. So you have the opportunity to see what things might have what impacts in practice, which is 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 a new thing and is a really valuable thing, I think.
2: I think some of this kind of feeds into a more general idea about experts and politics. and And actually, at the moment, it feels like going down and like having a, a point of view and sticking to it is is considered the kind of be-all and end-all of, of politics in this country. Whereas actually, what we've got the opportunity to with a lot of new technology is actually, as you say, trial it and, and see what works and have better evidence-based politics, which feels like something that's slightly lacking from, from politics at the moment.
4: And talking about experts, I think that's really important in this whole new world of tech um, is that it links to the earlier point about increasing diversity. It's that we shouldn't, this shouldn't just be about people from tech. It's much bigger than that. Mm. It has to be, when we're thinking about implementing these tech solutions, it has to go beyond just people in tech. It has to include people from academia, people from politics, people from policy, um, people from civil society, because it, it goes much broader than that. And that's really important when we're thinking about implementing these new technologies and a good way of kind of, hopefully helping to ensure that they work for as many people as possible and don't just increase existing inequalities
2: and biases. I've got quite a big question that I'm going to kind of throw out there now. But how much of this do we think requires a strong state presence in regulating innovation to make sure that actually it's not just kind of getting rid of, rid of jobs and, and uh, you know, is rampant capitalism gone mad rather than leaving it to, you know, just the private sector? Or does big state having that hand in it stifle innovation? I think firstly to say is that there's a whole series of ethical debates that are either happening in
3: silos or are not happening at all with the mainstream public on where some of this might go so um, it was mentioned on the podcast live the kind of uh, the driverless car scenario of who does it pick in terms of does it you know, go for an older person or a younger person, would it swerve different ways? You know, there will be all kinds of judgments that are going to be built in to these things. And also what we don't necessarily know is that the car might make a choice, but we don't know how the car next to it is programmed to make the responsive choice. You Imagine a, we're joking in the office about a kind of go-go gadget arm that pushes the car back. Oh, you make the other choice. Choose them, not us. As a kind of like responding to the car um, next door to it. And these things I think aren't really happening in the public debate. And one of the things... That the IPPR have called for, and there's a great piece in the magazine that the editorial supports, is the idea that there should be a body that leads this eth- ethical discussion with the public in the public domain. Um, in you know, make sure Parliament is having and deciding some of these things. Um, it, there, there's an equivalent that they draw out, which is the um, Fertilisation and Embryology Authority that looks at the ethical issues that that involves. And arguably, Parliament came ten years to that debate, but finally put in place the right regulations. Um, for it, and it looks like now definitely the time to do this. And the chancellor announced something uh, in the budget that the IPPR believe could be the solution to this and the vehicle for making it happen.
4: Oh, yeah, I, can, I completely agree um, that we need an ethics body. I mean, the the new UK Centre for Data Ethics is a really good start, um, but I actually think it, it needs to go further. We need to have uh, better powers for enforcing these ethical codes and, and punishing people when they when they break them the Information Commission um, went in a week later to Cambridge Analytica. It was plenty of time for them to lose any <laughs> I mean, it, it, there's, not, there's currently not enough. And like you said, the government... And I bet
3: Cambridge Analytica is better at this stuff than the Information Commission. They...
4: <laughs> I wouldn't want to speculate, but I but, would assume so. But, the,
3: but the, the way they'll be using technology, yeah. this was the problem in the banking sector, right? The people who are regulating the banks were either literally on succumbent from the bank and knew the Libra scandal what's happening and what happened in it, and were just like, well, it's my mate doing it, it's probably fine, or had no idea what LIBOR was until it was suddenly a scandal. Yeah, And that's the problem. It seems that the regulator is either totally unable to regulate with the information, or the people with the information are unable or unwilling to really regulate what ends up being their friends, because it's a quite small group of people who do it.
4: Completely. And, and, and the Cambridge Analytica scandal has just highlighted the need for good regulation, like you said, government comes too late to this always, and we, we can't constantly be chasing the next problem. We need to be anticipating them, and hopefully, GDPR um, when it comes in in May. Is Explain
3: it, GDPR for. Goodness. Goodness.
4: <laughs> so that's the it new. It keeps ju- coming
3: up in the office.
4: <laughs> it's the new uh, European uh, data uh, regulation. Um, and I think a big part of the problem in the Cambridge Analytica thing is that that big companies have, because data is effectively, to use the sort of buzz term, the new oil. Um, big companies have been seeing uh, consumers as sort of products because they represent data, which is which can be monetized. Um, so in order to um, regulate that uh, one of the things is GDPR has got better provisions for people knowing what personal data companies hold on them. So that's definitely a good step in the right direction. Um, But uh, like a lot of people say, it doesn't probably go far enough yet.
3: And is is Europe coming up with that legislation leading the field in it? And it seems to me that one of the perverse things about leaving the EU is, if you're worried about globalization, is it's the only body that has tamed some of these beasts. It's the only body that has been able to get Google or Microsoft or some of these big companies to actually change their behaviour in some way. And and this data thing seemed like a concept that you own your data, feeling like it was for the birds when it was first suggested. But now everybody is changing their
2: systems because they said, no, this is the terms of trade. Essentially, what it seems like is uh, is that state bodies need to take an interest in innovation but not necessarily want to kind of control it because regulators will never be innovators just that is that is yeah. how that works yeah and so the idea that uh, you know it feels a lot on the left now we're, we're back to kind of knee-jerk nationalization of of anything that moves or looks even vaguely successful it's like well the only way to make this actually a public good is for it to be state-owned and actually that's Clearly, just in cases like this, we don't really understand a lot of the new technology as it emerges, what the potential of it all is. So you can't immediately kind of take it under state ownership in that way. And and a much better way to do it is, is to try and let people innovate on their own and support Also, the happening. idea that if Facebook had been nationalized, it still could have been manipulated by
3: Russia and Russian money. But suddenly then the state, rather than being an independent actor going, well, that's acceptable or not acceptable behavior has a vested interest in, we have this company, whether it's profitable is down to whether this money is being ploughed into it. That surely isn't a healthy way for regulating this kind of public space, which you wouldn't in other parts of public policy and public life. The other thing is, the bit that you can imagine about this stuff going forward, and I imagine where some of your work will come into the limelight in future, is that there'll be failure involved, right? Or try things and they'll not go well. The Daily Mail cannot base bear the idea you might trial something and it might not be <laughs> successful the first time because then it's waste. They'd rather mm. you tried it with everybody and it messed it up than tried it with a few people, decided they didn't work and say, Well, actually, we have wasted a little bit, but it was definitely worth try-. you know, you have to make these judgments because most of what, well, even not even necessarily a high proportion of the time, it, it goes and
2: works, but when it does it's worth the return. But but also look at universal credit. We're actually, we're, uh, we've been at a point where you can say, let's pause this and sort out the... the... We're trialling it, it's failing. Yeah. And, and Do it anyway. <laughs> Do it anyway. <laughs> Who cares?
3: Poor people, more people are getting poor, so why <laughs> wouldn't we roll this out quicker?
2: It's a really bizarre thing. Um, does anyone have any kind of final points?
1: I, I just wanted to say that the um, whole nationalised Facebook debate kind of stems back to your point about the European Union. Like, Who's going to nationalise Facebook? Like yeah.
3: uh, what the global body, the UK
1: government. <laughs> you know exactly. It needs to be global bodies because Facebook does deal on a national, on a global stage to regulate these sort of companies. You can't uh, have no. national bodies. I did hear
2: that there was a global conspiracy running the entire world. We're not talking about this week, Connor. A- <laughs> okay, sorry. I saw that on a mural. It doesn't matter. It doesn't- <laughs> That is so last week. (laughs) I think think we need to wrap up that conversation uh, there. We have the political pub quiz next. But Hannah Miller, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank Thank you. you.
1: Each week, Connor asks a political pub quiz question, which is then answered on Friday's show.
2: Thanks, Sam. As it's just been Easter, I thought we would have a question about political resurrections because... I like I like making the questions themed. Of course, so my, my my question is: Which Labour leader has returned to Parliament the most times? And by returned, I mean returned after a period of absence from Parliament. How many times have they done that? Um, and and which which leader's
1: done it most? Okay, so send your answers to at Connor on Twitter or office at progressonline.org.uk for the chance to win a progress mug. We need
2: to wrap up now, but we've been delighted to have Hannah Miller joining us today. Do send in your questions and comments through Twitter, email, or best of all, as an iTunes review, and we'll respond to them on Friday's show with the best iTunes comment winning a prize and don't forget to subscribe and rate the show thanks for listening
4: you've been listening to the progressive britain podcast the music was when in the west by blue dot sessions licensed under creative commons and many thanks to the brilliant caroline crampton who produced this podcast